The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. This morning we'll look at Luke 18, verses 15 through 17. told someone this morning, I think I've officially hit the place where I'm old. They said, why is that? I said, well, I went to the eye doctor uh, this week, and uh, he said to me, well, it's about that time. And I said, what time is that? He said, the time for bifocal glasses. He looked at uh, my age and saw that in July I turned half a century old and said, it's about time. And so this morning I have multifocal lenses in my eyes so that hopefully I can see my notes and you at the same time. You may or may not have known that's been a problem since about Monday, Thursday. I either see my notes or I see you one or the other. And I usually choose my notes, so I have no idea what you're doing out there. But today, today I know. At least if the lenses work. All right. Despite my age, we'll look to God's word and Pray that God would speak through his word and me his servant. Luke writes, beginning in verse 15, Now they were bringing even infants to him, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. It's the word of the Lord for us this morning. I don't know about you, but I find it interesting the things that I remember from childhood. There are whole sections of childhood that I don't recall at all. And then all of a sudden, there are little flashes from childhood that come back as though it were yesterday, and I remember it all. I remember learning a song in children's church or or Bible study or Sunday school or something as a child called Jesus Loves the Little Children. Did you hear that song or learn it when you were a kid? Jesus loves the little children. I'm not going to sing it. I'll say it. He loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Very simple song and yet a very profound and true song. A song that expresses in very clear and simple language that either an adult or a child can understand that Jesus is a Savior who loves children. No matter who they are, no matter where they're from, no matter what race they are a part of, no matter what color their skin is, no matter what their ethnicity is or what level of of wealth or poverty they come from, Jesus loves children. All the children of the world, he loves them. I don't think there's any text in the New Testament that better illustrates this truth in reality than the one that we find ourselves looking at this morning in Luke's Gospel. A beautiful, glorious scene where Jesus welcomes and receives children to himself. While Jesus loves the little children of the world, It's important for us to remember that we have an adversary, Satan, who does not love the children of the world. One who hates the children of the world. The Bible tells us that he is continually mustering all the cultural forces at his disposal, in fact, to destroy the children of the world. These days, things like cyberbullying and social media are great weapons in his arsenal. He attacks them at at an early age with all sorts of worldly, foolish philosophies, and in particular these days, gender confusion. The forces that he he musters uh, to accomplish his ends in the life of our children know how impressionable children are. 
and how important it is to reach them with the message as early as possible. And therefore, you and I pick up the newspaper or click on the news stories online and you see stories about drag queen story hour at the local library. Why is that? Because we have an enemy who seeks to destroy children and wants at the earliest age possible to begin to influence them with lies that will wreck their lives. And so he uses the things available in any particular culture. He uses things like social media to try and get our children addicted to screen time, to try to get them to live for and to anchor their self-esteem and how many likes or how many followers they can accumulate. So it shouldn't surprise us when we look at statistics and we see things like the reality that between 2007 and 2017, pediatric suicide rates tripled. And if you want to track that through the pandemic and after, it's gotten worse. In fact, U.S. News and World Report published an article not too terribly long ago And in it, they indicated that suicide is now the leading cause of death of 13 and 14-year-olds in our culture. Let that sink in for just a moment. When the Bible says that Satan is roaming around like a roaring lion, seeking to whom he might devour, if you think that's just some sort of hyperbolic metaphor that the Bible uses and nothing more, you're a fool. We have an enemy who seeks to actually devour and destroy our families, and in particular, our children. Children are important. Children are impressionable. And children are vulnerable. And while Satan seeks to destroy them, our Lord Jesus Christ loves the little children. He receives children. He honors children. He blesses children children. If you want to hear some striking statistics, listen to this. If you want to know when do, if you were to survey the Christian population in America right now and ask the question, when did you come to faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? People have done this. In one of the more recent studies, they found that these were the statistics. Between 60, between the ages of 4 and 14, 63% of professing Christians came to faith in Christ. Another 34% between the ages of 15 and 29. Only 3% of those professing Christ in our culture said they came to faith in Jesus at age 30 or above. So do that math pretty quickly and you realize that 97% of the believers in our culture came to Christ before the age of what? 30. And the larger proportion of those came to Christ in childhood or their teenage years. It's pretty remarkable, isn't it? It's pretty telling how important it is to invest in and to love and to teach our children the truth and the gospel. There is in reality all around us a spiritual battle that's going on and the hearts of children are hanging really in the balance. And the stakes could, have, could not be higher. And the battle in our awareness of it, in our engagement of it, has never been more important. The great evangelist D.L. Moody said this. He said, if I could relive my life, I would devote my entire ministry to reaching children for God. A remarkable thing to be said by someone used by God to do so much for the kingdom. Looking back on his life, he says, if I could do it all over again, I'd give my whole life to ministry to children. He saw the things, even in his day, that are true in ours. While the culture around us is seeking to exploit and to destroy our children, God has designed that the family and the church work together to bring them to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is our call as believers, and that is our call as Christian parents, and that is our calling as a church. 
And so when we look at our text this morning, we begin to see two things that sort of clearly come out of this text. We see, first of all, Jesus' love and his receptivity toward children. And then we see, second to that, how he uses children as an example of all who truly enter his kingdom. This morning, we'll see that first truth really with some clarity. And next week, we'll come back to the second piece of that. But we realize in this very short little little snippet that, that Luke gives us, also recorded by Mark and Matthew in their Gospels, that Jesus loved children, that he received children eagerly, and it was his great joy and honor to bless the children that were brought to him. We're told they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. Now, in our day, this doesn't seem all that unique. In our day, people in general like children, unless they're strange in some way. Most people like children, unless you're stuck in an airplane with one that's screaming his head off for 14 hours. In most cases, people like children. If you're walking through the grocery store carrying your child, some adult is probably going to start making silly faces and wave and laugh and giggle with your child because people in general like kids. People in general love kids. One could argue that in our culture, kids almost get too much attention and receive too much status. In many cases, kids rule the house. Even in many Christian families, everything revolves around the children. Today, the danger isn't that people will dishonor children. The, the, the real danger is that kids get too elevated of a sense of importance in the world around them. But it wasn't like that in the first century. In the first century, it was quite the opposite. Childhood was not something that was valued. Children were not well-loved in general. I mean, maybe by their parents, but apart from that, in public, not so much. People didn't dote over the kids. It was a, a very, <coughs> excuse me, patriarchal society where men were the most important people in the family and men were the most important people, people in the culture, grown men who could work and could contribute to the economy of, of society and life. Next in line were, were women who were secondarily important to the men and children were really at the bottom of the barrel as far as importance in cultural life. Children were meant to be seen and not heard until they could be productive in society in some way until they can make a contribution when they've grown up. And so here we see Jesus uh, doing the opposite of what the culture does. And we've seen him do this many times. We've seen him do this with the poor. We've seen him do this already multiple times with the sick and the lowly. We've seen him do this already with tax collectors and prostitutes and notorious sinners, people who the culture despised and neglected and marginalized, Jesus tended to honor and exalt and lift up and honor them with his time and his attention and his blessing. And he does that here again, but with children. And so we see here in the setting that people are bringing, this is people, parents, bringing their children to Jesus to be blessed. And the, the tense of the verbs here tells us that this was not just one parent or two, but this was a continual thing that was going on. There were parents who were bringing their little children to Jesus that he might bless them. They wanted him to touch their children. They wanted him to bless them in some manner. And so they were sort of flooding toward Jesus with their children in order that he might do that. Now, an interesting note in our text is that, that you'll notice, uh, if you have an ESV, it says they were bringing even infants to him. That's the way the, the ESV sort of renders this. The, the first word here is a, the G, that Luke uses is a word for infants, for babies. If you were to look at Mark and, and Matthew's account, we won't take the time to spin over there today, but you can do it on your own. The word they use is the word for young children. Luke, Luke specifies uh, uh, infants here or babies. Now, when Jesus speaks later, when he says, let the children come to me, he uses the word for children, young children. But interestingly enough, Luke wants us to know that in the mix here, we're not talking about like adolescent kids, but we're talking even infants, like babies, little children are being brought to Jesus to be blessed by him. 
People knew that Jesus was uniquely from God. They knew that he was perhaps even divine. They had heard about his miracles or even seen his miracles, and they knew that there was something very, very different about him. They knew that he was powerful, and they wanted him to pronounce some kind of blessing on their children. They were hoping that his blessing would convey some kind of good fortune or convey some sort of divine protection over their children. And so they brought their children eagerly to him. It was a sort of a common practice even within Jewish life to bring your children and have important rabbis or uh, particularly synagogue elders pronounce blessings over the children. And because Jesus' reputation has become what it's become and the word of what he's done is spreading, people are now uh, redirecting with their kids from the synagogue elders or the Jewish rabbis. Now they're bringing them to Jesus, wanting him to do this thing with their kids. And so he's being flooded here in the midst of trying to teach, in the midst of doing the other things he was doing in his ministry with parents, trying to flood in and bring their kids to bless him. Now what's remarkable and interesting here is we're told that the disciples did not seem to think this was a priority, right? The disciples were told, rebuke the parents when they saw this. Okay, you parents, stop all this. Back off. Stop bringing your kids up here to Jesus. Now, Luke, nor the other gospel writers, tells us why they rebuked parents and stopped them from doing this. We're, we're not told why. Maybe it was because they saw this as some sort of an unwanted intrusion into the, the ministry that Jesus was doing. Maybe they felt like Jesus had more important things to do than to spend all of his time holding babies and touching children. Maybe they, like the rest of their culture, didn't think that children were very important and that it was really the adults that deserved and needed the attention of Jesus more than anything. Whatever their motive was, whatever their reason, they were trying to stop it, and they were trying to put a halt to it. And what's remarkably interesting here is that Jesus rebukes them. While the disciples are rebuking the parents, Jesus is rebuking the disciples. There's an irony, isn't it? Mark tells us it wasn't just that, but he was quite indignant with them. In Mark chapter 10, verse 14, we read, but when Jesus saw it, that is, what the disciples were doing, he was indignant. He was, he, was, he was pretty livid with his disciples for getting in the way and stopping this. He made it very, very clear to them that they needed to get out of the way and that they needed to let the kids be brought to him. Let them come to me. Do not hinder them. It's quite clear that Receiving the children and blessing them was not viewed by Jesus as an interruption in the more important things that he was doing. It seems quite clear that it was the important thing that he was doing. And that he took great joy and great delight in doing it. That he saw the, the holding and the blessing and the receiving of children as a priority. And he was delighted to receive them. And he found joy in doing this as a part of his ministry. This was not some sort of cold duty where he just sort of brought the kids and moved them on as quickly as he could possibly move them on. You know, like celebrities taking selfies with all their fans, right? Now here, take a selfie. Okay, get out of the way for the next one. Or there's people signing autographs in the line. You know, here, I'm signing your football. Now get out of the way of the next one. This wasn't Jesus. He took time, we're told to even hold the children and to bless them. Mark tells us in verse 16 of Mark 10 that he took them, this the children, in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. And Jesus makes it abundantly clear that there was nothing more important to him than receiving and holding and blessing these children that were being brought to him. There was nothing more important that he could be doing at that time. There was no other ministry that he would have rather been doing at that moment than doing that very thing. They were to let the kids come. He wanted nothing more than to receive them and bless them. In a couple of weeks, we're going to have the opportunity as a church family to participate in a parent-child dedication. We've got a family that's going to come, and they're going to bring their little children and they're going to bring them to the front, and they're going to make commitments to raise and honor their children in a way that would honor Jesus Christ, that would one day perhaps lead them to faith in Jesus Christ. And we as a church family are going to gather around them and together make commitments to, to come alongside them as, as parents and to help them and to pray for them and to encourage them and to be a part of the work of God in the lives of their kids. 
And it's based on texts like this very one that we're looking at this morning that we believe Jesus will receive and bless them as we do that. We do things like that because we believe God cares deeply about children. And he cares deeply about parents. And he cares deeply about the role of the church in the life of parents and children. After all, the Bible makes clear that it's God who makes children, right? That's where children come from. Psalm 119.73, the psalmist looks up to the Lord and he says, Your hands made me and formed me. Give me understanding to learn your commands. Isaiah 44.2, this is what the Lord says. He who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you. Who is it that makes children? Who is it that forms them in the womb? It is the Lord. The Lord makes children. Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 and following. The word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah writes. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. Remarkable thing for God to say to a man like Jeremiah. I knew you long before there was a you. I made you. I set you apart for something remarkable. It is God who makes children, and children come from him. He gives them to parents as a gracious gift. Psalm 123, verse 7 says, Behold, children are what? A gift from the Lord, right? The fruit of the womb is a reward. God makes children. He gives them to parents as a gracious gift. And he he gives parents the, the awesome responsibility to raise them in such a way that they would honor him with their lives. Of all the things that a parent is responsible to do, and it's clear that parents are responsible to do an awful lot of things, right? Parents, we love, we're responsible to love our kids. We provide for them. We protect them. We teach them life skills. We teach them how to be respectful. We teach them to be good citizens. We, we want to come alongside them as they grow up and help them learn a skill or help them get an education so that they can be successful in the world in which God's placed them. But there's one thing that's far more important than any of those responsibilities in the eyes of God, and that's this. It's parents teaching their children to love and to honor Jesus Christ. There's nothing more important as parents that we're called to do than that. Nothing. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, Paul writes, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Our call as parents in the lives of children is to raise up our children, to bring them up in the instruction of the Lord, to train them, to teach them, so that they'll end up grown adults who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who grow to spiritual maturity and honor them in every aspect of their lives. That's what God's called us to do. As a parent, that's got to be our priority. It's quite clear, at least on this day, and that Luke records in his gospel, that the parents were doing anything they could to get their kids to Jesus. Even overcoming the obstacle of the disciples. And I would suggest to you this morning that parents, there's nothing more important in our day than the same thing. And getting our kids to Jesus. That they might know him. And they might love him. And they might give their lives to him. Reminded of what Jesus said on a different occasion when he said, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? It's a reminder to people like us who are responsible for raising children in a way that would honor the Lord to remember that the most important thing is their soul. To remember that we can raise up our, our children to be the next PhD or the next Nobel Prize winner. We can raise them up to become the next, the next NFL star, the next president, the next congressman. We can raise them up to be Olympic champions or beauty queens or astronauts or the next billion dollar uh, entrepreneur. But if we don't raise them up to love and honor Jesus Christ, the rest of it is eternally worthless. It has no value beyond the simple years they're given to live here. If we don't raise our children to be Christ-like, what have we done? All their earthly accomplishments go to the grave with them. But to know and to love Christ is forever. It's forever. 
And it changes everything about everything else they do. As a church, you know, we, we recognize what an awesome, awesome task it is to, to raise children, for parents to do that. And as a church, it's part of the reason why we practice baby dedication, parent-child dedication. We practice that because we want to, to regularly remind each other and parents and the church as a whole what an awesome responsibility is and how important it is for us all to be involved in that endeavor. There's really three reasons why we practice this. The first is there's sort of a, a public recognition of the fact that children are a blessing from the Lord. It's a recognition that children are first and foremost from him and for him. And so we honor parents and we honor children and we do a, a parent-child dedication to remind them and to remind us all that children first and foremost belong to the Lord and they're given to parents to steward their lives. But they're God's children. And we thank him for that wonderful gift that he's given us as parents but it's also a way that we publicly make a commitment as parents to raise and our children in a way that, that honors Christ, that they might know him as Lord and Savior. It's a way for us to stand publicly and make, as parents, commitments and vows, if you will, much like what you do at a wedding. I, I stood at an altar in a couple of weeks, it'll be 25 years ago, and, and made public vows to my bride that I would do certain things and that I would treat her a certain way and that I would live with her in a certain way from that day forward. And I did that in public, not in private, because there's some public accountability that comes with that. Because all of you who are married, like me, know that marriage is not a walk in the park. Can I get an amen from God's people? There are times when it's difficult and it's hard. You smash two sinners together and put them in a house to live together. Give them the ability to create little sinners too. And what do you think is going to happen? You think it's going to be a walk in the park? Are you kidding me? It's not. It's hard. And there are times when you want to quit. There are times when you want to just give up. And so part of what we do as a culture is we make vows in public because in front of friends and family, we recognize that we need friends and family when it gets hard to provide us that accountability, to provide us that encouragement, to provide us that help so that we don't give up and so that we don't quit. And so in like fashion, we practice the parent-child dedication, recognizing that children are a gift and recognizing that as parents that we need to make commitments to the Lord to raise them because the challenge is not for the weak. And it's not easy. And children don't make it easy. And that brings us really to a third reason that we do that. It's a public recognition that, that we need God's help and we need God's blessing for that task. We deeply desire that God would bless and protect our children, much like these parents did in Luke 18. It's a drive of our hearts. As our kids go out into a hostile world with all sorts of dangers and all sorts of belief systems and a culture that wants to suck them right into materialism and sexual perversion and self-exaltation and self-obsession and all the things that come with living in the culture in which we live, we need more than anything God's blessing and we need God's protection over our children. We deeply desire that God would bless us and help us as parents. That's what we're doing when we practice a parent-child dedication. It's also a public recognition of the church's role in the lives of our children. It's a parent's way of recognizing that the church has a role in the lives of our kids. When we do this in a few weeks, it's not just the parents who are going to make promises and commitments, but we as a church are going to make a commitment and a vow to those parents to come alongside them and to assist them and to help them and to be a part of God's purpose in their life in raising their, their children in a way that would honor Christ. Parents, God has given you a church family as a gift to be a part of this process in your life. If you're a parent in this church, there are many people in this church that are already taking that responsibility very, very seriously. There are those that are already loving and encouraging and teaching and helping your children. And there are many who've gone before you in raising kids who can come alongside you as parents and encourage you when it's hard and help you when you don't know what to do, and counsel you when you're wondering 
what a good parent looks like that honors Christ in a particular situation. There are, there are people who've gone before you who, who love you in the body of Christ who will just be a shoulder to cry on when you need that, when parenting is hard. It's such an under, I think, valued thing in our very individualistic American culture, the value of the corporate body of Christ coming alongside and being a part of raising our kids with us. Everything in our culture says you do everything by yourself. But the Word of God says the church has a role in the lives of our kids. You know, when I reflect back on my own life, I am so thankful to God for the church families that I grew up in. When I was born up until the age of six, my family was a part of the early predecessor of this church. There are, in fact, some who are in the room right now who changed my diapers when I was a baby and held me in the nursery. And I'm not particularly proud about that. But, but, and they like to remind me of that. Like me, they're getting up there in age and becoming fewer and fewer. But those folks played a role in my life when I was little. Some one of them somewhere taught me that song, Jesus Loves the Little Children, and I still remember it. There were people in that church family that invested in me up until the age of six. After that, my family moved to to Somerville, and we attended a, a church there and were members there until I was through high school. And as I think about that church family, I can their their faces that immediately come to my mind of, of people who are just not my parents. They were just people who were part of the church. People who, who loved me, who encouraged me, who had very profound influence and impact in my life. Very grateful for them. Very grateful. Sunday school teachers, youth pastors, pastors, Christian friends, all of those things were such value in my life. I can say for certain, I would not be the Christian man that I am today apart from their influence in my life. There's no way I would be in Christian ministry today if it were not for the influence of these various people who you would never know in my life at various stages because they were a part of my church family. And because they cared enough to invest in me and to be a part of my life. Now listen, some of these ones who changed my diapers and knew me like, you know, from birth to like seven or eight, they can tell you I didn't make that easy all the time. I was a wild little fella. But they loved me anyway. And they taught me songs. I still know the books of the Bible because there was a, a vacation Bible school teacher. I just remembered this. A vacation Bible school teacher said, I'll give you five bucks if you learn the books of the Bible. I'm like, five bucks? Sure. <laughs> Bribery totally worked. I still remember the books of the Bible because that teacher gave me five bucks to learn it. I'm not necessarily advocating bribery here, but listen, sometimes you do what you got to do to make it happen. But I'm so grateful for the church families that I grew up in. I can tell you this, I grew up in church families that were incredibly imperfect, filled with imperfect people who said and did at many times very imperfect things. Churches that didn't always get along with each other, didn't always agree on various issues. But those are not the things that I remember. The things I remember are the faces of the people who told me the gospel, who taught me the books of the Bible, who taught me the song, Jesus Loves the Little Children. It's those youth pastors who came along in like middle school when everything is just weird, and high school when you're learning what the big world is like and facing all kinds of new temptations. It's those people that made all the difference in the world in my life.
And of course, as I mentioned, there are people here right now this morning who are doing all of that in the life of the children of this church. And I want to say to you this morning, there's nothing more important you can do in your life than that. Invest in children. Love children. Teach children about Jesus. Love them in the nursery. Volunteer to serve in the children's ministry. Volunteer with Ben and Audrey in the student ministry. Be a part of God's work in the lives of our young people. Teach them the Bible. Pray with them. Pray for them. This is why it was such a travesty in the midst of a, of a pandemic when all the churches shut down. Because church is essential. It isn't optional in the lives of our children. And for two years, all of our children and young people were isolated from the influence of their church family in their lives. They had nobody to teach them Sunday school. They had nobody to come alongside them and walk with them through the hard times of high school because they were made to stay at home and cut off from the life of the church. Church is essential, and we need each other if we have any hope of raising our children in a culture like ours in a way that they'll honor Christ and love him. We can't do it alone. Absolutely cannot do it alone. Now, I want to make a side note here, coming back to our passage. There are those, if you read uh, wide and far in the evangelical world, who will try to use the passage that we're looking at this morning to make the case for infant baptism. You could go back and read folks like John Calvin and others, primarily from the 4th century on, who point to this passage and they would say, well, the idea here is that the way Jesus receives them is an indication that we should receive them into the fellowship of the church through infant baptism. Many Christian denominations practice that rather than a parent-child dedication. If you have friends that are Roman Catholic or Lutheran or Presbyterian or Anglican, they probably practice some form of infant baptism. And if you've never seen that or you don't know what it is, it's basically children are born. Parents at some point early on bring them to the church and they, as a part of the service, they bring their children forward and the priest sprinkles water on their little head and they're baptized as a part of infant baptism, and that is the only baptism in most of those cases that they will ever have in their life. They then grow up in the life of the church. They're taught catechisms, and at some point when they've progressed far enough, the church confirms them. Sometimes that confirmation is based on a personal profession of faith. Sometimes it isn't. Each denomination sort of has their own sort of slant on on what they mean when they practice that particular thing. For some of them, it's salvific, meaning that their salvation is tied to their infant baptism. An unbaptized child is not saved, they would argue. And therefore, as early as possible, you need to baptize your baby so they'll be saved. There are others who say, no, it's not that, but what happens here in infant baptism is that infant baptism just sort of counteracts original sin. It sort of, it sort of cleanses them from all that stuff they're born with, that contamination they're born with, and gives them a, a, a clean slate to now they're just accountable for the sins that they actually commit in their own life. Still others, like our Presbyterian friends, will, will say, no, that's, that's not what any of this means. Really what it is, is it's a, a New Testament replacement for Old Testament circumcision. Just like in the Old Testament, they circumcise babies as signs of the covenant. In the New Testament, we should baptize our babies as a sign of the new covenant. And so they practice that. So every denomination has a little different slant on it. For all of them, it marks some sort of entrance into the, the life of the church or the covenant of the people of God in the local church. If you were a parent in one of those groups, you would never dream of not baptizing your baby. You just wouldn't dream of it. Now, the sad reality of that is because of that practice in our particular culture, we have the largest population of baptized non-Christians that I think has ever walked the planet. There are hundreds of thousands of people around us who are baptized in a Christian church who are not believers. They've never confessed their sin. They've never cried out to Jesus. They've never repented of their sin. They've never trusted Christ alone to save them. They've never submitted to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But they're baptized in a Christian church. And in some sense, part of the local body. And I would say from my own perspective as ministry now for all these years, it's the hardest group of people to reach with the gospel because they don't think they need it because a Christian church somewhere already baptized them and welcomed them into the membership. 
They're already baptized. They're already confirmed. Why do they need the gospel? We don't practice infant baptism. It is not the same thing as parent-child dedication. It is not the same thing. What we practice is parent-child dedication when children are born for the reasons that I just talked about a few moments ago. And we practice believer's baptism when children come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ on their own. We baptize them as a sign that Christ has saved them, that they have personally believed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, that they have personally placed their faith in him to save them, that he has washed them and made them whole, that he has forgiven their sins and given them new life. The reason we do this and the reason we don't practice infant baptism is because infant baptism is not found in the Bible. You can search it high and low until your eyes are bloodshot and red and you will not find one instance of any infant or young child being baptized in the Bible apart from saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ preceding it. You won't find it. Proponents of this thing would point to passages in, in the book of Acts where they would say, well, there are whole households that were baptized, and there had to have been children in those households, and therefore, because of this practice of household baptism, we should baptize households now, all children. But this doesn't really hold water. I'll, I'll point to two reasons, or two examples of this. If you look at Acts 16 and verse 15 and following, I'll give you two examples of Acts 16. There are others in the book of Acts that I won't take the time this morning, but in Acts 16, the early part, you've got this woman, Lydia, who comes to faith in Christ. She does that because Paul is preaching the gospel, and he's preaching it on this particular occasion to a group of women. And we're told in verse 15 of Acts 16 that she was baptized and her household as well. Now, Paul had preached that, and in verse 14, if you backed up one verse, you would find, we're told this, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So Paul preached the gospel, the Spirit of God opened her heart to what Paul said. She believed the gospel, repented of her sin, and entrusted her life to Jesus Christ, and she was baptized as a public profession of her faith. We're then told that her household was baptized as well. So for us to believe then that that here we have the template for infant baptism, we have to make several very critical assumptions. We have to first assume that Lydia had infants and young children in her household to be baptized. We don't know that. The Bible doesn't tell us that. We don't know anything about Lydia's household to know what was there or not. So we have to then assume that there were infants and young children there. And the second assumption we would have to make then would be to say that there were people in that household who were infants or young children who were baptized apart from saving faith, unlike Lydia. Neither one of those things is stated in the text. We have to assume them and read them into the text. We don't know anything about Lydia's household or particularly who in that household was baptized and on what grounds because none of it's told us in the text. The same thing, if you scroll down in your Bible to verses 31 and 32, we have the Philippian jailer also, a very similar situation. He asked Paul and Silas, what does he need to do to be saved? And they said to him in verse 31, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. So again, the template is clear. Paul preaches the gospel to the whole household, and the whole family is baptized after that. So to, again, extrapolate infant baptism here, we have to make those same exact assumptions. We have to assume that there were infants or young children who were not capable of hearing and believing the gospel on their own, who were a part of all of this, and we have to believe that they, we have to assume then that they were included in this baptism, rather than just those who were old enough to make those commitments on their own. None of that, again, is stated in the text. We have to assume that and read it in. In each of these cases, there are other very reasonable assumptions that can be made. It could be made, the assumption that when Luke referenced a household, he meant only the adults in the household. There's nothing to say that that isn't a reasonable way to understand those texts. We could say that in looking at this, it's just as reasonable to assume that what Luke was really trying to say, or what Mark in this case was trying to tell us, was that, that, that it was, wasn't just the, the individual who believed the gospel, but it was the other adults, and it was the other family members who might have been living there, perhaps other servants and others who were part of the household. 
who believed the gospel and were saved. But there is no indication in any of these that somebody was baptized apart from hearing the gospel and believing it. We have to then assume all of those things. There is no clear evidence of any of that in the text, nor anywhere else in the Bible. It's not found in the Bible. In fact, one Catholic scholar by the name of Hegebacher said this, this controversy has shown that it's not possible to bring in absolute proof of infant baptism by basing one's argument on the Bible. So in other words, you have to base your argument on something else. Even proponents recognize that. The other reason we don't practice this is because it isn't Christian baptism. Christian baptism is very clear. The template all throughout the New Testament is clear. People hear the gospel. They believe the gospel. They repent of their sin. They entrust their life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And then they are baptized. Read through the New Testament. That, that cycle plays out over and over and over and over and over again. There is no other pattern for baptism. And it, in fact, is the whole point of baptism. It is to make a public profession that I believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's to make a public profession for the whole world to see that Christ has indeed redeemed me. That's what baptism is. And that's what it means. To advocate for infant baptism, you have to make baptism mean something other than what Christian baptism actually is. And I have lots of friends who are Presbyterians, and I love them dearly. We'll be in heaven together. We will. They might be closer to the throne of grace than I am. But none of them have provided any clear evidence to me of any connection between Old Testament circumcision and New Testament baptism. Again, the connection has to be read into the text. Nowhere does the Bible say anything that indicates New Testament baptism of infants is the New Testament version of Old Testament circumcision. It's a fascinating idea, but the Bible doesn't teach it clearly anywhere. And so that's why as, as, as Baptists, we don't practice that. What we practice is parent-child dedication. We recognize children are important. We recognize they're from the Lord. We recognize that parents have a tremendous responsibility and that the church has a responsibility along with them in raising them in a way that honors Christ. And then we teach them the gospel from the time that they're born until they can come to personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when they do that, we baptize them like we did the last couple of weeks as a public profession of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that was a long aside, and our time is up. So let me bring it around this way and leave you with this message to parents. Parents, parents, the heart that drove these parents in Luke 18 needs to be the heart that drives parents today. We need to do everything we can in our power to bring our kids to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. There's nothing more important than that. And we have to believe that, and we have to own that, and we have to live that. We have to be committed to teaching them the gospel. We have to be committed to teaching them how to honor Christ with their lives in a world that hates Christ and doesn't want to honor Christ, that doesn't value honoring Christ. We have to teach them biblical values, what is actually right and what is actually wrong, versus all the plethora of lies that they're sold in the culture. We have to be about this business. Everything else falls way down the priority structure. And you say, well, pastor, I haven't done a good job of that. Well, that's okay. The Lord forgives and the Lord is gracious. If you're alive and your kids are alive, there's still time. It doesn't matter how old they are. Teach them the gospel. Teach them what it means to know Christ. Teach them what it means to, to live a life that's godly, that honors the Lord. Grandparents, you have the same call, the same responsibility. And church, the call really is to us to, to remind ourselves that we have to do everything in our power to assist parents and to get kids to Jesus. It is that heart that drives so much of what we do. If that statistic is anywhere near you know, correct, if 63% of the people in our culture who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior came to Christ between the ages of 4 and 14, that ought to be very instructive to any church that has half a mind and is paying any attention then our efforts need to be guided towards people in that age group. Then our energy and our resources need to be put toward people in that age group who are most receptive to hearing the gospel and receiving it. We need to make children's ministry and student ministry a true priority in the life of our church. 
It's why we do things like the Good News Club at our local elementary school, because we believe that it matters to influence kids with the gospel, and we look to do it in every venue that the Lord gives us an opportunity to do that. It's why we partner with Charleston Christian School so that we have partners who come alongside us and in, in, in investing in children all day, every day during the school year with not just math and reading and science and history, but with the gospel of Jesus Christ and teaching them how all of that is impacted by what they believe and grounding their faith in the gospel and their understanding of the world, grounding it in the gospel. It's why we open our building to Veritas and work with them to do the very same thing for homeschool children who come twice a week on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. You come to this building and there's almost 300 kids buzzing around this place. They tear stuff up and they make it dirty. And I don't care because somebody here is giving them the gospel during that time and helping them to understand what it means to know Jesus. It's why we do those things, and it's why they're important. And as a church, we can never undervalue those things. And it's why we need every adult who's a part of our church family helping in that endeavor so that we're not constantly having to, to beg for adults to see it as a priority to help with the kids. So we're not having to constantly badger people to volunteer and to serve the children. We care about the gospel. And if we care about them like Jesus did, we'll do everything we can to get them to Christ. Will you be a part of that? You say, well, I'm not a parent. That's okay. Those of us who are parents need people like you who are not a parent to help and to encourage and to come alongside us and to be a part of this with us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there are times when we read your word and we see your commitment to the truth, some of the hard things that you teach. And if we're not careful, we can get the wrong impression that you're cold and hard, that you lacked emotion and joy and compassion. But it's in moments like this in Luke 18 when we just see in our own sanctified imagination your face light up to see parents bringing the children to you to see parents who were doing everything they could, overcoming every obstacle just to get their kids to you. And we see your compassion and your love for parents and for children. And it is really, Lord, just a reminder to us as a church family that we need to share that compassion and that commitment to get kids to you. As a church family, those are they're, they're parts, there's a part of our church that are parents that you've gifted them with children. And those of us who are in that category, Lord, we need you to bless and to protect our children. We need you to help us raise them in a way that honors Christ. We too are sinners. We too are people who fail and flail about and sometimes feel like we're just trying to figure it out. We need your help every day. And Lord, we need the help of our church family too to come alongside us, to bless our children, to invest in them, to love them, to change their diapers, to teach them Sunday school class, to chaperone a youth trip, to pray for them, to give generously so those ministries can thrive and so that we can find new ways to reach those between 4 and 14 and whatever other age we can reach with the gospel. Lord, elevate this in our minds and commit us to doing this well and serving you in this area. Help us, Lord, to all be a part of what you've called us to in the life of children. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.